before we gather around the communion table, so to speak, we are in Matthew chapter 25, message entitled, The King is Coming. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you give us understanding of your word as your children. Lord, that you would use the gospel to touch hearts for those that may be here. We don't know hearts, but you do. Those, even as the passage point out, that, that may be members of, of a church, but Lord, no power, no life. Lord, that you would convict them and draw them to yourself this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 24, where this discourse began, Jesus has finished a long day of ministry. They've left the temple, they've gone down the Kidron Valley over the other side, and he sits resting, and he gives them this great discourse called the Olivet Discourse. But they asked a couple of questions in verse 3 of chapter 24. When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And he comes to chapter 25, and he says, those people need to be prepared. Now he's in particular talking about his second coming. This isn't about the rapture. This isn't about the church. This is about the saints that are alive during the tribulation period. So there's special instruction. And there's all of these terrible, awful things that are going on during the tribulation. When you re read Revelation, where we get more information about this time, Jesus is unrolling the scroll, and as he breaks the seals, which, are, which is the title deed to the earth, and the earth is, he's redeeming the earth back to himself. And during that time, there's going to be all these terrible judgments taking place, but those, there's also going to be a great time of harvest take place. Many, many people are going to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. The whole nation of Israel is going to recognize they miss their Savior. As a nation, they're going to turn to him, but it's going to be Holocaust. It's going to be an awful time. And if any people ought to be ready, it seems that those people should be ready. But he begins here in chapter 25, and he says, verses 1 through 13, make sure you're prepared. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourself." And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Jesus says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now, believers alive during that time will know from the time of the signing of the covenant between the Antichrist and Israel, there's seven years, but the day, the hour, they don't know. So he says, be on the alert. Now, weddings were a really big deal in those days. Traditionally, a Hebrew wedding began with an engagement, 
and you just didn't get engaged, there had to be a divorce because two families are coming together. And so if, if, they, if those dads, those fathers made that contract for a wedding, then that was going to happen. And if for some reason it didn't happen, there had to be a divorce. If a, hus- if a, if a fiance, a young man, died before he was actually consummated his marriage, she's called a widow. It was serious business. And so Dr. Bookman teaches us that what would happen is the father had his estate, and after this deal was made, he'd say, son, now you just build a room on the house, and that's going to be your your first uh, place you live with your wife. So he'd begin to build and prepare his place for his wife. And the party is being prepared. And these celebrations would last for sometimes a week or more. Costs the dad a lot of money. Just like it does a day many times. That's why when I have a wedding ceremony, they're very short. It doesn't take me long to get to the point. I say that all wedding or marriage counseling is wrapped up in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. You get that down, you won't have any problem in your life. You see, if a husband loves his wife as much as Christ loved the church and lives a life of sacrifice for her, he's going to be a leader she can follow. He's going to be an encouragement, example, provider. And if a wife submits to her husband like he's Jesus, and we know he's not, both are going to take the filling of the Holy Spirit. But if you can do that, you can concentrate on being the person God wants you to be, the marriage is going to be amazing. And so people say, well, your ceremonies are short. I say, yeah, I want to get to the party like everybody else does. That's what we're waiting for, the celebration. And so when the bridegroom had finally finished his place, and he's so excited about getting his bride, so a lot of times it's just for the suspense, they'd wait and they'd wait. Then he'd get all his friends together, the groomsmen, and they'd go by the bride's house. And so at midnight, they would shout, and all the bridesmaids would come out. Now, it was tradition. The bridesmaids were uh, just virgins who hadn't been married, and that's why it says these 10 virgins. He's not marrying 10 girls. He's just getting one bride. But they're all there, part of the wedding party. And each bridesmaid, because it's at night, needs to have her own torch. It's not really a lamp, it's a torch, usually with a rag, rag soaked in oil. But you know what happens is it kind of dries out. And so it says they all got tired waiting. It's not that they were indigent or not doing the right thing, but they all got tired. It's midnight. You've been anticipating and you've been waiting and waiting, and so they just fall asleep. But when the shout comes, those that are prepared are ready. And they get up. And they go with the bridegroom. And you think, well, are those people being stingy? Here's the point Jesus is making. You can't share salvation with somebody else. You can't save anybody else. Parents can't save children. Friends can't save one another. There's only salvation personally. There's not generic salvation, family salvation, church salvation. There's only personal salvation. And salvation can't be bought. He says, go and buy. It's just talking about the source. Salvation can't be bought. The buying of oil from the dealers refers simply to securing salvation from its only source, God. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. 
You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Just talking about the source. There's only one source of salvation. Now, what's he talking about here? About those that even during the tribulation are attached to a body of believers, but they're not really saved. They look like it on the outside. They're going through the motions, but they are never really prepared because they've never submitted to the gospel. How often do we hear testimonies? And so we always question, well, I grew up in a Christian home, so I've always been saved. No, nobody's born regenerate. We're all born in sin. And it's not that you have to remember the date, but there's a time when you have a conversation with God. Now, sometimes it's tougher for kids growing up in a Christian home because, you know, they don't have to come out of a life of drugs and drinking because they have good Christian parents. And so they don't have the testimony of being a gangster and a drug dealer before they got saved. And so sometimes we're always looking inside for the answers. You're never going to find the answer for salvation by looking inside and thinking, well, am I good enough? No, no. The answer's in the Scripture. Have you submitted? Romans 10, 9, and 10. Have you had that conversation with God? Romans chapter 10, 8 says, the word is near you. It's, it's close. It's nigh. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. The word of faith that we're preaching. What's he saying? You've got to have a conversation. Just like in the Old Testament, he said, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, I'll wash them white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, I'll wash them whiter than wool conversation with the Lord. Nobody's born a Christian. There has to be a submission to the gospel. And some people are just afraid when it really gets down to it, they don't want to, they understand the cost. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. You can't do it on your own. Take up your cross and follow me. What, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you're going to the sign of the cross now. He was going to the place of sacrifice. He was saying, your life is my life. And it's only by the supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit that a person realizes their lost condition and is given the gift of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Even the faith to believe is a gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. But here are these even in these terrible times, have kind of taken refuge, identified with, and I, and I think for the most part, anybody, any Christian that lives through that time is going to be supernatural protected. So maybe that's why they're identifying, but they have never really submitted. And the saddest words any human being can hear. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said the same things. How many will come into me that day? At the judgment, say, Lord, Lord, we've done many wonderful works, and we've cast out demons, and he will say these same words. I never knew you. It's too late. When the king comes back, when the king came the first time, people had opportunity after opportunity. But once the king shows up with his second coming and you haven't received Christ, it's too late. We said before, many think, well, I'll just wait to the rapture and then, then I'll see, oh, I wasn't saved, so I'll get saved then. If you're not saved during the age of grace, how can you guarantee you won't be able to believe the lie? Because it's about your life. 
Then he goes on to say, not only you need to be prepared, but you need to be invested. He says in verse 14, the kingdom is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one he each according to his own ability, he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with him and gained five more talents. I love that. Immediately. Why? This guy is so excited about the opportunity of doing business for his king, for his master. He's excited. It's not a drudge. It's not like, well, do something with his stuff. He is excited because that's his business, the kingdom. And he go and he, he invests, and he makes five more talents. In the same manner, in other words, immediately, the second one was given two talents. Now, remember the Bible says that the master gave according to their abilities. Listen, every believer is given spiritual gifts and opportunities. You, each one of us are equal in our salvation, and we're not going to be judged for, for, you know, like some people, they have gospel guns. They put notches every time they think they get somebody to make a decision. Well, that's wrong because we don't save anybody. And we're not the ones keeping the tally. The Bible says that in 1 Corinthians 3, that one day all of our works will be made manifest. It's like you can build with gold, silver, precious stones, or you can build with wood, hay, stubble. Your choice. Paul said, the foundation's laid, that's Jesus Christ. But the Bible says we will be judged by our faithfulness to what God has put into our hands. Now listen, remember, this is during the tribulation. So these are people that get saved and they get busy about the king's business in spite of all the persecution, all the trouble, all the judgments that are going on. These are people that are so excited about being Christians, even in the face of death. And so he gets his two talents and he goes out, he gets two more. But he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who received five talents came up and bought five more, brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. You see the joy in the ministry? The joy for the opportunity of doing business for the king? They were so excited. And it takes risk, doesn't it? When you really live for Jesus, it takes a risk. Even more so during this time of tribulation. These people risk in order to invest for the king. His master said to him, well done, faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who also had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, see you have what is yours. So it's basically... Um, he, he represents 
professing Christians, maybe this isn't a real believer, because a real believer is excited about what God might do. Now listen, every one of us struggles with boldness. Don't think that's a problem unique to you. But the question is, Jesus worth investing your life for him? This slave simply did not make, or excuse me, the slave that he represents, professing Christian whose limited knowledge of God leads him to conclude that God is distant, uncaring, unjust, and undependable. So guess what? I better take care of myself. That's what I'll do. I've just got to get through the tribulation. I'm not going to take it. I'm just going to play it safe. I'm not going to risk for the king. Why? Because that's not his heart. See believers that come and it's time to worship. They just stand. I don't need to worship. And yet the Bible says what characteristic of believers they worship. What's amazing to me, and it's such a blessing, is we have these college young people come and they're not playing it cool. They just shout to the Lord. You should have heard when we had our men's fellowship feast, all the college guys are right over here. Guess who was lifting the roof off this place? Those college guys, man. Made the old guys sing louder too. Worship is something that comes from our heart. The desire to praise the Lord for all of his wonderful works. For the greatest work that he took our place, us as sinners on the cross. And every true believer desires to please his master. So it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's giving new information. He said, now you see your abs from the body, you're present with the Lord. That ought to give you courage. What's the worst thing can happen in your life when you invest your whole life for the Lord? Well, death. No, that's not the worst thing that can happen. Worst thing that can happen is you hide your talents and your gifts in the ground and you don't do anything for the Lord. You show up like that freak fig tree with nothing but leaves for the master no fruit and it seems to indicate that there's no such thing as a fruitless believer so he gives this explanation basically calling his master uncaring greedy he reaps where he doesn't sow and he just takes it all for himself and the master says you wicked lazy slave if you knew that I reaped where I didn't sow and gather where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have put my money in the bank. On my arrival, I would have received at least my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does not have shall be taken away. Throughout the worthless slave in the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now he's talking in particular about the tribulation time. But listen, every one of us have been given that know Jesus Christ have been given eternal life. And every single believer has been given giftedness. It's amazing to me that the majority of Christians don't even know what their spiritual gift is. Well, pastor, how do you find out that? Get involved in the ministry of the local church. Get involved. Remember... Uh, John Hutchison, he thought he wanted to be a youth pastor. About two weeks, he came to the same conclusion, and he was so relieved. I said, John, you're not a youth pastor. He said, oh, I'm so relieved. I thought I was going to have to come and disappoint you and quit. I said, no, no, it's just pretty obvious. It's okay. Do it. Fix it. Try it. 
but get involved. And somebody will say, wow, look what you do. So what's spiritual gift? It's not music. That's a, that's a natural talent. It's not art. That's a natural talent. You ought to use those things for the Lord too. A spiritual gift. There's lists. They're not complete lists. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And every believer has a mix of spiritual gifts for what? Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, so that the body will be built up, so that we'll be mature. Because as you minister your spiritual gifts to me and I minister them to you and we minister to one another, as we mature, we all come to the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. We grow up in Christ. That's how you mature, by ministering your gift. If you don't know what your gift is, how do you know where you're supposed to be investing? Paul wrote in, first, in, in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ. Here Paul is in prison, and he says, I'm going to be released. Now he had two options. He was going to be released by death, and he said, that's far better. You see, he had invested his life so much that it was time, and he said, that would be better. But he said, I'm pretty sure the Lord wants me to stay and minister to you, and that's fine with me because my life is Christ. My life isn't on the weekends. I go to church on Sunday. My, my whole life, everything I do is for Christ. So when Christ has priorities given us in Scripture, we just say, well, I'm busy. I don't have time to minister. I don't have time to serve. I don't have time to speak for the Lord. I don't have to, time for, to go for the Lord. Now listen, God's not called everybody to be an international missionary. He's not called everybody to be a pastor, but he's called every one of us to invest all of our lives. And you know what? That's where the joy is. That's where the joy is. As a pastor, I'm not saying, hey, you know what your spiritual gift is. You ought to feel bad. I'm telling you that because, listen, you're missing out on the joy of being able to one day hear from Jesus Christ, well done, faithful servant. That's the greatest joy. And the last part, verses 31 through 46. Be warned, or excuse me, be prepared, be invested, and lastly, be warned. Judgment is coming. Now, there's three judgments that are important to us that we think about. The first is the Bema judgment for, for believers. That's where we're going to be rewarded for faithfulness. Paul talks about that, as we mentioned already, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Marriage Supper of the Lamb, where there's going to be those rewards for faithfulness. Beatings aren't going to be handed out because Jesus took all of our sin on the cross, but it's rewards. Remember he said the first shall be last. I was talking to Billy yesterday, and he said, it hit him. You know what that is? Is When you go to the Olympics, and Paul's using that as an example many times, the, the, the ancient Olympics. The first shall be last. Who gets the reward first? Third place. Third place. And then who gets the reward second? Second place. Who gets the reward last? First place. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Everybody in heaven is going to be glad to be there. Everybody. You're going to be perfected in righteousness. You're going to be there in the presence of God for all eternity. But oh, to show up and hear well done. That's the beam of judgment. 
Then here is the sheep and goats judgment. That's what he's talking about. When Jesus shows up, there's going to be a judgment. We already talked about the rapture. Two are going to be in the field working. One will be taking, one taken away. Two are going to be grinding at the mill. One taken, one taken away. The taken away there is to judgment. That's not the rapture. Well, it is a rapture, but they're taken away to judgment. And it says here, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him and also us, Romans 19, or Revelation 19, 11 says, we're all going to be coming back with Jesus also. He will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the sheep separates the sheep, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here's the standard now remember again, it's the tribulation. So you can't buy or sell during the great tribulation unless you have the mark of the beast, right? So it's going to be a hard time for anybody that doesn't have that. And there will be laws against helping anybody that doesn't have the mark of the beast. So if you help somebody, another believer, that doesn't have the mark of the beast, you'll be risking your own life. So sometimes people try to use this, and I guess there's application about not helping the guy that's looking for money sitting on the side of the road. He's got his sign out there. How do you know when to help? I pray. In Laramie, you know there's a lot of indigent people that don't want to work, and they're very professional. They make a lot of money because people feel bad. They give them money. You don't have to give money to everybody you see. You're not going to be in trouble because of this passage. You pray about it. There's some people that genuinely need help. But the Bible says... You're not going to find the righteous begging bread. Why? Because we can go to God. We can pray. We don't have to stand out there and look for a handout. There's other people who have genuine needs. And the Bible says our first responsibility in James is to love one another. And if you say to your brother, be thou warmed and filled, brother, I'm praying for you. When you have the ability to meet his need... Big question, how does God's love dwell in you? Hmm? On the other hand, this passage is talking about those that are suffering because they're believers and going without during the tribulation. And they said, the king says those in his right, come you blessed of my father. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. That is a risk. Going to visit a believer in prison during the tribe of tribulation, you're risking your life. What does it take? It means that you have more than just physical life. You're not afraid anymore. That you have the motivation of the Spirit. You've invested your whole life for you to live as Christ and to die as gain. And you're not afraid to go and visit and minister to those that don't have the mark of the beast. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you stranger, invite you in or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these my brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave no nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now he's talking in particular to those that judgment, that judgment of the sheep and the goats, there's one more judgment coming, and that comes in Revelation chapter 20, after the millennial reign of Christ, the great white throne judgment, where the dead are given up, the, the sea gives up the dead, hell gives up the dead, and only in the, the unrighteous stand before that great white throne judgment. And they'll be judged out of the books, and the biggest question is, is their name written in the Lamb's book of life? If it's not... They go from hell to the eternal lake of fire. Judgment's coming. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, but now once at the consummation of the ages, Jesus has manifested, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment. Jesus said, be prepared, be ready. Peter wrote in his second epistle, make sure your election in Christ, make sure. It's not enough to fool the people around you. God knows your heart. Make sure you're saved. And the warning to those at the tribulation, when Jesus comes back and you've, re you've rejected him, it's too late. There's no time to say, oh, oh, Jesus is here. Oh, let me receive him. I guess I finally believe. No, because at his coming, there will be an immediate rapture to the judgment and then death. Father, we thank you that you loved us as your children and you gave your only begotten son. Lord, now we gather around the table to rejoice and to remember that all that we are, all that we have is because of Jesus. And to worship you for that, Lord. And Lord, I pray for those here today that for the first time may be realizing because the Holy Spirit is touching their heart, they don't have a Savior. Lord, open their heart that even in the quietness of where they sit, they can reach out in their heart and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, Lord Jesus, and rose again, and I take you today as my Savior, so that all, they also might participate in this family meal or remember that it's Jesus in whose name we, we pray, amen.